we're going to jump right in today. The Lord's put a, a, a lot in my heart, and uh, hopefully I'm able to get it out in a way that makes sense today. Uh, but John chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 26 um, here. Now, this, this, where this is taking place is the day after Jesus fed the multitudes with the, the fishes and the loaves. How many of you remember that story of Jesus feeding the multitudes with the fishes and the loaves? Well, this is the day after that. And the people, it tells us in verse 22, the people who had been fed by Jesus when, when uh, the next day came around, they were looking for him again. And so Jesus, when they find Jesus, he addresses them and he says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he's saying, you're not seeking me because of, of what the sign means. You're not seeking me because of what the sign shows. The sign, the, the miracle that he had done pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Savior. But he says that they're not coming after him because of their belief in him, but rather because he fed them. So they're coming to Jesus the next day, not because they want to sit at the feet of the Messiah and the Savior and the Christ, but because they want Jesus to feed them breakfast. And that's what he calls them out and says, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What an incredible claim. Jesus here is claiming that he has the power to give eternal life. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So what, does it that God, what is it that God requires of us? What is the, the work of God, the will of God for us? It is that we believe upon Christ. Though they had eaten of the fishes and the loaves, they had not believed. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is an incredible thing that they tell Jesus. The one who had multiplied fishes and loaves to feed a crowd of 5,000 men the next day they say, well, if we're going to believe in you, you got to show us some sort of sign. And then what do they point to? They point back to the wilderness. They point back to Moses, who, who fed them in the wilderness, if you will, not for one day, but for 40 years. And so they're saying, yeah, Jesus, you fed us one day. Moses fed us for 40 years. 
So if, you're, if we're going to believe in you the way we have believed that Moses was sent by God, you're going to have to do a lot more than feed us one lunch. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is this, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is good news. Well, how, how do the people who are hearing this respond? Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that everyone, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to speak to us. Lord, we need to hear from you today in our world that is so confused about so many things, Lord, your word is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. God, I pray that you would sanctify us in your word. Lord, your word is the truth. Lord, through your word, the, the, the sword of the spirit, I pray that you would sanctify us, wash us, cleanse us, cleanse our minds, cleanse our thoughts, Lord, this world that is so sick and depraved, Lord, I pray that your word would separate us, would, would draw us out, would draw a clear line of distinction between your people that is, is, is headed towards eternal life, Lord, that is headed towards the resurrection, and that your word would draw that, that, that deep mark of distinction 
between your people and the world, Lord, that are headed towards destruction. Lord, help us to see things clearly as you see things clearly. Lord, we need your help today. We ask for it in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now today we're kicking off our summer series. We finished Philippians last week, and yeah, we get to move on. Uh, And last week I did mention that for our summer series, we weren't going to be going through a book of the Bible, but we'd be doing a topical series looking at a lot of the social issues that are happening in our culture today, issues like abortion and gender identity, sexuality, homosexuality, secularism, humanism, evolution, racism, etc., 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 all of these fun topics that we'd be looking at over the summer. And so the question arises, why in the world would you do a series like this, or would you want to do a series like this? And the truth is, I, I don't want to do a series like this. I don't desire to do it. I actually have not a whole lot of desire to do it. It's actually quite a difficult task. It would be easier to just jump into a book of the Bible and start working our way through it. However, however, as you begin to peer beneath the surface and take a deep and serious look, as we're going to do at the way things are on these topics, which we're going to find is, is quite disturbing. And so it's not that I want to do this, but it's because I feel compelled to do this. Because there is a strong deception that is sweeping, sweeping like a tidal wave through our culture and the Western world of which we are a part. The end result of this strong deception is death. There is no doubt about it. It produces death in our friendships, death in our family, death in relationships. And if we are not careful, it even produces death in our relationship with God, in apostasy. The end result of the deception that is sweeping our culture is death. And this deception, unfortunately, has even, in many, many, many places, in many ways, infiltrated into God's church, with God's own people being led astray by this deception. And as your pastor, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you, for your family, for your children, for your grandchildren. And so, uh, yeah. I I want every one of you to fulfill the plan and purpose of God on your life and, and for your kids and grandkids and to the next generation and the next generation. And so the only antidote to deception, there's only one. It's the truth. It is the truth. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. But for you to be set free by the truth, you have to know it. It's not the truth you don't know that will make you free. If you don't know the truth, you're living in lies and deceit and deception. There's a famine in our world, there's a famine in our culture, there's a famine in our land. Not a famine of food, I'm not talking about a food shortage. I'm not talking about the baby food shortage. No, the famine in our land is a famine for the Word of God. The Word of God is not being preached, is not being proclaimed in our nation. 
The Bible even talks about that in the book of Amos, that there's a famine for the Word of God. And so we as God's people, we must herald the truth to these issues so that we can be set free from the lies of the enemy. There's this quote by Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said this, No greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than to have God's word taken away from them or falsified so that they no longer have it pure and clear. God grant that we and our descendants be not witnesses of such a calamity. Martin Luther of course, the, the one who kicked off the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was about one thing, sola scriptura, the Word of God. What does the Word say? And he sought to reform the church by the Word of God. But listen, the church today needs reformation more than it ever has. We live in a world full of conflict. We see the conflict There's major conflict today in our culture. You flip on the news, you see it at work, you see it in our families, we see it at school. There is a war that is raging. It's all around us. It's it's like a cold war that we're living through in our culture. We can feel it. We have have a a mass uh, migration of people around the country moving out of places that are dominated by an ideology, looking for some, some ease, some, some, some sanctuary from the war that is raging. It is a real war, and sometimes it even breaks out where we can see it with our eyes. And we see it because on nearly every issue that we would bring up, every issue that we would discuss, discuss, We find that people today are diametrically opposed to one another. When I was growing up, there seemed to be some sort of middle ground where people could come together on issues, but today there is no middle ground. There is no common basis even with which to begin a negotiation. There is no coming to the middle. Now, the conflict that I'm talking about is not a conflict between left and right politically. That's not the conflict that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a conflict between Democrat and Republican, between blue states and red states. I'm not talking about a political conflict at all. The conflict that I'm talking about is much, much larger than left, right, Democrat, Republican, blue, and red. Now, when I mentioned some of the topics that we were going to be looking at this summer, some of you may have thought that we were getting political. But I want to assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. We are not getting political. Why do I say that? Well, not one of these issues is a political issue. But every single one of these issues is a theological issue. The church, unfortunately, has um, surrendered its duty in the world and to the culture by handing off its job to politicians. These are not political issues. They're not meant to be debated in the political sphere. 
These are theological issues. The conflict is a theological conflict. What is the source of this conflict? What is the source? By way of just introduction today, before we get into looking at the different topics over the coming weeks, I want to show you that every single one of these issues has at its root the same issue. That every single thing that we're going to look at, all of the things that are a war in our culture today, in our society today, they're not the root of the issue. They're simply the fruit of one root issue. And so what is the source of this conflict? Well, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus here makes some staggering claims. Jesus claims that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. Jesus claims that if you believe in him, that he will raise you from the dead on the last day of history when he returns. Jesus here claims that he is the bread of life that has come down out of heaven. And here in John's gospel, this is the first of these seven exclusive claims that Jesus makes. Not only in John's gospel does he claim to be the bread of life come down from heaven, he also claims that he alone is the light of the world, that he is the door of the sheep, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the true vine. These exclusive claims that Jesus makes about himself. He claims for himself that he is the one who has come from the Father, the bread of life come out of heaven. Four times in this passage, if I'm counting correctly, no, excuse me, seven times in this passage, Jesus claims to have come down from heaven that his origins are not earthly, but his origins are heavenly. And we learned about that in, in Philippians chapter 2, that he laid aside his rights as the creator, as the son of God, as the ruler of the universe, got off his throne to be born as a man, that Jesus came down from heaven. Now the Jews who hear this, they understand what he is saying. That's why they object. Verse 41, the Jews grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They understood exactly what he was saying. That's why they recoiled. It's not because they don't understand. It's because they do understand what he is saying. It was Mark Twain who said this. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. I am God in the flesh. I have come down from heaven. They didn't like that message. Why? Well, because that message, listen to me, that is either true or it is false. There's no third option on this. Either Jesus is who he said he was, or he's not. And if he is who he said he was, 
if he is who he claimed to be. He was not ambiguous. He was not foggy. He was not like a walking fortune cookie and he would just leave everything that he said up to interpretation. No, he had a very sharp and distinct message. He is explicit in what he says. Either he came from heaven or he didn't. And if Jesus was who he said he was, what does that require of us? What are the implications of that? If Jesus is the bread of life come down from heaven, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, if Jesus is the door to the sheep, the only way to be made part of God's family is going through Christ, if Jesus is the only hope we have for the future as the resurrection and the life, what are the implications of this? What does this require of us? It requires full and total submission to him. And this is the issue. This is the source of the conflict in our culture. Will our culture submit to Christ's authority or not? That is the issue. The issue is Christ and his authority. You'll recall when Jesus cleansed the temple in Matthew's gospel, he drove out the money changers. He drove out those who were polluting the worship of God. The Jews came to him and they said, by what authority do you do these things? This is the issue. Christ's authority. Is he who he said he was? Or is he not? Now this issue of Christ's authority does not begin in John 6. And it doesn't even begin with the life of Jesus. In fact, it begins in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you'll go with me to Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. He makes it good. He says it's very good. He blesses humanity. He says, go into the world, be fruitful and multiply. He plants a garden for them where they can eat of the tree of life. They can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, on the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. Now, Genesis chapter 3 into this paradise, Satan enters disguised as a serpent. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 2, tell us, identify for us exactly who this serpent is. It is Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the first thing that Satan does when he comes on the scene is he begins to question the word of God, question the authority of God. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any tree of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you will not surely die. Okay, so, so here we have two options. Either God is a liar or the serpent is a liar. 
Either God is the liar or the devil is the liar. God says, if you eat of the tree, you will die. And Satan says, you will not die. Here is the conflict. Here is the conflict. Whose word will you believe? Whose authority will you live under? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be enlightened. You will be educated. You will have your PhD in the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of this tree. Don't eat of the tree of life. Eat of this tree. Your eyes will be opened. And you will know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he took and ate. The eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they saw, sewed fig leaves together and made loan cloths, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God comes, he says, what have you done? They begin to blame one another. God places humanity under the curse of death, as he had promised to do. The Lord made atonement for them by slaying an animal and covering them in the animal's skin, pointing towards and foreshadowing the atonement of Christ and that we would be covered in his righteousness one day. And in the midst of the judgment, rightfully so, that God judged them because of their sin and rebellion, in the midst of the judgment was a promise. It's what theologians call the proto-evangelum, the, the first preaching of the gospel, is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That there's coming a day, there's coming a redeemer, there's coming one who is born of the woman who will be wounded by the serpent, but who will eventually crush the serpent under his feet. That offspring, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, notice what he tells the woman. You will be like God. You will be like God if you will eat of this tree. Your eyes will be opened and you can, you can determine what is right and wrong for yourself. Do not live under God's authority. Do not live under God's rule and reign. Be a law unto yourself. And this is the issue that continues to plague our society. This was the issue. This was the conflict between the Jews and Christ. Was would they submit to his authority or not? This conflict started here in Genesis chapter Three. Now, of course, sin now has entered the world and, and death has come because of sin and everyone who sins will eventually die and all of us have sinned and all of us will die. The only question is, upon our death, where will we go? Will we be found in our sins or will we be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Will we be found on our way to judgment, or will we be found having been forgiven 
for the judgment that Christ endured on our behalf. Now the world becomes so corrupt, the book of Genesis continues, the world becomes so corrupt. Genesis chapter 5, chapter 6, Genesis 6 verse 5 says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and it was great on the earth that sin just multiplied. Listen to what he says about mankind, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. That is, that is the condition of mankind without redemption, the condition of mankind without Christ. So God decides he's going to judge the world. He shows grace and, and finds favor, or Noah finds favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. He saves Noah's family from the judgment that he brings. And then when Noah leaves the ark, he, he restates to him the same mandate, the dominion mandate that he had stated to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, God's desire for the earth is that it would be filled with his image bearers who love and serve and worship him that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so as, as uh, Noah and his family leave the ark, he restates and he reestablishes his covenant with Noah and his offspring that the earth would be filled with his image bearers. Now, in Genesis 11 Genesis 11, so flip forward a few more pages. This is after Noah leaves the ark with his family. God had told them to go and to spread out and to fill the earth with his image bearers. Do you think they're going to obey God or not? Let's see here. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the uh, they found a, a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, "Come, let us bake bricks, make bricks, and burn them thoroughly." And they had bricks for stone and butumen for mortar. And they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves." lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so God says, go into the whole earth and subdue it, have dominion and establish my worship in the world, bring me glory as my image bears. And the people say, nope, we like this place. We're gonna park it here. And we're not going to ascend to heaven by your means, God. We're not gonna follow the proper worship, but instead we're gonna build our own city we're going to build our own temple, and we're going to find our own way to heaven, not through the means that you have provided, but through our own efforts and our own works and our own good uh, deeds. We will put, place our trust in our technology and our, on our, on our ingenuity, and we will build for ourselves a city, and we will not make your name great on the earth, but we will make our name great on the earth. And we will live in rebellion against you, and we will not live under your authority, but we will be an authority in and to ourselves, and we will have our utopia here, 
in the plain of Shinar. Verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. So he, he sends them out to cover the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, out of Babel comes this ideology of Babylon. Babylon becomes the, the, the prototype for, for the world's way and the world's system in rebellion against God. You read all the way to the book of Revelation, and they're still talking about Babylon. Well, Babylon's not in the world anymore today by name, but its philosophy is still in the world today. The philosophy of Babel, the philosophy of Babylon, who say we don't need Christ and his kingdom. We will not submit to him. We will not submit to his law or his rule, but we will come together ourselves, autonomous from Christ, and we will build our own society, our own utopia, our own worldwide system and government. That is what is happening today. Through the, the cultural elites and the, 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 the gurus, the, 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 those who are pushing globalism today, it is Babylon 101. The United Nations is Babylon 101. We do not need to submit to Christ as our ruler. We will submit to no one and we will be a law unto ourselves. We will not be united under Christ, but we will be united in our rebellion against Christ. The World Economic Forum that meets in Davos every year to plan the mass extinction of the human race. The open borders movement of demolishing the nations. All of these are a modern expression of Babel and Babylon. And it's rooted in a philosophy that says Christ will not rule over us. That's where the conflict comes from. And so when we talk about abortion and evolution and homosexuality, and when we talk about all of these things, the issue is submission to Christ and his word or rebellion. That is the issue. This is the, this is the strain that connects all of these things together. Psalm chapter 2. Flip over with me to Psalms chapter 2. Is this making sense? I'm, I know this is kind of like a little out there. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together together 
against the Lord and against his anointed. That, that, that word anointed there is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's the word Messiah. So the nations are raging against Christ, against Yahweh, the Lord, and his anointed. The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves together. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We will not live, the nations of the world says, we will not live under the rule of Christ. We will not live under the rule of his kingdom. We will not observe his word. We will not live under his authority. Though he is the king of kings and lord of lords, we reject him and we will break the yoke of his kingdom off of us. We will cast away their cords from us. We will break their law off of us. What is God's response to this? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means he scoffs at the idea. He mocks the idea. The idea that the created thing, the idea that the creature could overthrow the creator... God laughs at that idea. It's foolish. It's folly. It's the height of deception. Nevertheless, the kings of the earth are dominated by this philosophy of Babylon. The Lord mocks them. Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's saying, there is a king that I have established to rule from the throne of David, to rule all the nations of the world. And that king is the Messiah. That king is Jesus Christ. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, who is he speaking to? So this is, this is Yahweh. This is the Father speaking to the Son. The Father speaking to Christ. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is not a petition that God's people are to make. The father said to the son, all you need do is ask, and I will give you the nations. I will make the nations yours, my son. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, did Jesus forget to ask? Can we rightfully and safely assume that he did ask the Father for the nations? And so what this means is that the nations of the world are the heritage of Christ, and the ends of the earth are his possession. Christ is king over all the earth. And what shall he do with them? Verse 9, you shall break them, he says, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations that will not submit to the lordship of Christ will be swept into the dustbin of history. 
Where is Rome today? In the dustbin of history. Every nation that exalts itself against Christ will come under the judgment of God. You shall break them with a rod of iron and cast them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, pay homage to Christ, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 2 describes our world today with the leaders of the nations of the world aligning themselves in rebellion against Christ. It's a joke to God. It's... It's laughable that they could even attempt such a thing. The nations belong to Christ, and he will judge those who do not submit to him and his authority. And so the question that lies before us is, will we live under God's authority, or will we claim our own autonomy? God's authority or our autonomy? There is no autonomy. Autonomy is a myth. We are created by God. We are sustained by God. To even argue against God, we have to borrow his air. The the idea that we are autonomous, that we can can decide and make our own path and and follow our own desires and, and decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, it is the deception of the garden. Do we, are we the autonomous ones? Or is Christ the sole singular one who has autonomy? Do we self-identify and define life on our own terms? That's the, 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 the ethos of our day. Follow your heart. Choose what is right and wrong for you. It's the ethos of the garden. It's Babylonian thinking. We will either live under God's authority or we will try foolishly to live out our own autonomy. But there is no autonomy. We are completely and solely and totally dependent upon Christ. Every, Every human being. Christ is the creator. He is the one who reigns over his creation of which you and I are a part. And Christ has revealed his will, his will to us in his word and in his law. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. Christ reigns through his word like any king reigns through his word. Now too often, even as God's people, even as believers in Christ, This is the great trap for us. This is the concern that keeps me awake at night. Because we live in this world, because we live in Babylon, we've been indoctrinated with the philosophy of the world. We've been indoctrinated with the philosophy of autonomy. And so we, even as believers in Christ, even us who believe in the atonement of Christ, as Christians, when we approach the Scriptures... 
So often we come with the approach of those who think they are autonomous. We come to the scriptures, we come to the word of the king with the same presuppositions, with the same underlying assumptions as the atheist, as the atheist. Well, how does that manifest? Well, let me show you. Instead of submitting to God's word, we, even as Christians, put God's word on trial with us as the judge. And we look at God's word and we say, I will determine whether or not this is true or whether or not this is false. I will, will, will according to my own standards, whatever those are, changing and shifting as they do constantly, I will come to God's word and instead of coming with the attitude of submission, that I will live under God's authority, I come with the attitude of autonomy. Well, let me see if I agree with this or not. Let me see if I will obey this or not. And we judge God's word. We put God's word on trial and us is the judge and we judge it according to our cultural standards. No! Jesus is the judge. We are not the judge. Jesus is the judge. It is not his word that is on trial. It is us who are on trial. And his word is the standard. His word is the law. And we have broken his law. And we think we're the judge. This is the deception of the garden. If Jesus is who he said he was, if he is God in the flesh and his word is what he said it was, the word of God, then even the act of questioning the word of God is rooted in sin and rebellion. The idea that I will set myself up over the word of God to judge it, that I will decide if it be true or false, valid or invalid, that in and of itself is an act of rebellion against God who rules in heaven. Who are you to set yourself up as a judge over God? We must repent of all thinking in that way. This is why the deception infiltrates the church. Because we don't approach the word of God as like it's the word of God. We treat the word of God like any other book. These are not the words of men. These are the words of God. And we have broken his word. And so Christ has entered into human history to redeem the rebellious people, to to call a people out from the world unto himself. He went to the cross. He lived a life without sin. He died in the place of sinners. He rose again on the third day. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He offers eternal life and salvation to all who would believe in him. And he calls on those who believe in him to follow and to keep his word. Before Christ ascends into heaven, he declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Jesus rules over the kings of the earth. 
as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King. He is the judge. He is seated on His throne, and He will return to judge the world. It says in Ephesians 1, we won't take time to turn there today, but Ephesians chapter 1, that God showed the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe in Him according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus went from the lowest point Well, first, he started at the highest point, descended all the way to the lowest point, so that he might draw us who believe in him back up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. He has drawn us up into heaven, those of us who are in Christ, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is where Christ is today. Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he has given Christ to us, the church. He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The the language is past tense language. This is something that has already happened. This is not something we are waiting to happen in the future. This is present reality now. Christ reigns now. Amen. Over every name that is to be named. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Anyone who would exalt himself uh, above Christ will find himself in a bad spot. All authority belongs to him. Every square inch of this earth belongs to Christ. There is not one speck of dust that does not belong to Christ. This includes every person belongs to Christ. The question is submission or rebellion. The question is God's authority or our autonomy. That's the issue. The issue is not who is in charge. The issue is not who is seated on the throne. The issue is not whose word should we believe or follow. No, the issue is simply whether we will believe or follow his word. And so finally, what do we do? As Christians, what do we do? How do we respond to the world that is around us? How do we respond to a world that is living in rebellion against its king? Well, as Christians, we follow Christ. We follow Christ. That's what we do. We follow Christ. And so how did Christ respond to the world around him? Well, that is the question. If we are going to follow Christ, we must learn from him and how he responded to the world around him, that we as Christians might follow in his path and respond in the same way. So what did Jesus do when he walked the earth? Well, Jesus was known as a rabbi. You know what a rabbi means? 
a teacher. Do you know what Jesus taught? The Bible. Jesus taught the scriptures. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to follow the word of Christ. Ten times in the Gospels, when people come to, to Jesus about some issue, Jesus gives this sarcastic and scathing rebuke. He, ten times in the Gospels, he says, have you not read? Haven't you read in the Bible? Don't, don't you know the scriptures? Have you not read? And the funny thing about it is he's asking Bible scholars that question. And what he's saying to them is, you don't know your Bible. Seven times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard it was said this way, but I say to you. Seven times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the law of God, and he doesn't relax them in any way, but he ups the ante. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, but I say, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is a Bible teacher. Jesus teaches the scripture. He taught the word of God. He taught the law of God. Jesus brought God's word to bear on those who listened to him. His message that he preached was one of repentance, turn from sin, and one of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is here, and we are to live lives of repentance as part of the kingdom of God under the submission and rule of him. Jesus taught, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so as we turn to the word of God over the rest of this summer season, what we are going to find is that God's word is in direct opposition to our culture on every single point. Because the conflict in our culture is a conflict with God himself. It is war against Christ. It's an issue of God's authority or our autonomy. And these two worldviews are the antithesis of one another. They have irreconcilable differences. They cannot be harmonized. They cannot be unionized. The gospel of Christ and the social, social philosophy of our age cannot be made uh, to compromise with one another. They will not. The world will not compromise with us. We need to stop compromising with the world. You see, the way that the world is trying to infiltrate and, and dominate every square inch of our lives, it's a counterfeit kingdom. It's trying to remove Christ from every square inch of our life to which he has rightful authority and dominion. And the great folly of the modern church has been the foolish attempt to fit the gospel into the world's mold. You cannot blend light and darkness The day that Martin Luther was afraid of is, has come. We are living in that day where the word of God has been taken away, falsified, and polluted, and it has started in the church of all places. But no more. No more. No more. We will not bow. We will not bow. We will be like those three Hebrew children that stood and would not bow. 
in the midst of Babylon with the pressure of the nation upon them under the threat of death, they said, Christ is king. And I will not bow to any other king except Christ. The great declaration of the early church was Jesus is Lord, which stood in direct opposition to the, to the phrase that was on the coin of every day. In their coins, it did not say, in God we trust. In their coins, it said, Caesar is Lord. And the church goes out and begins preaching. There's another king. His name is Jesus. Jesus is Lord, even over Caesar. Now, the world will use all kinds of clubs to try to beat us into submission, to try to beat us into silence. As God's people who stand on God's word, we will be labeled everything from racist to bigots to intolerant to homophobic to phobic of this and that and this and that. We will be called uneducated, anti-science, privileged, biased, prejudiced, impolite. Now, to the world, it doesn't matter if any of these things are true. Why? Because the world is at war with the truth. And so their weapon is lies. But the point is to use that club to browbeat, coerce, intimidate, and bully God's people into silence. But we will not be silent. Amen. We will stand on the word of God. And we will obey God's word. Now the question for us here today is have we bought into the myth of autonomy? Have we approached God's word on the world's terms? When we come to God's word, do we come ready to submit to Christ our King? Or do we come as judge to judge God's word, whether it be true or false? You are either living, we are either living to the submission of the Lordship of Christ, or we are living in rebellion trying to assert our own autonomy. So I have to ask you, where are you today? Is there an area where, where in your life can you identify where you have been claiming your own autonomy against Christ and his kingdom? Where have you been living in rebellion to his word? Trust me, he takes it seriously. God does not wink at sin. The cross shows us how deeply God, how deeply serious God takes sin the price that was paid to redeem our lives. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, he says, how can we who have been set free of sin live in it anymore? God calls us to a life of holiness. And when we live in rebellion, we're trying to exercise our own authority, our own autonomy. We're trying to be an authority in and of ourselves. We're following the serpent. We're following Babel. We're following Babylon. We're following the philosophy of the world. But we're not part of the world. We're part of the kingdom of Christ. Amen. We're called to live in willful submission to our king who died for us, who laid down his life and shed his own blood to purchase us for himself. And so submitting to that kind of king is not any kind of chore, but it is a great joy and privilege.